Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Tar Heel Prescription, a student-run podcast here at the UNC School of Medicine. I am one of your co-hosts, Anu. And I am your co-host, Peter. Today, we are going to be talking about SHS course here at UNC School of Medicine. We are so fortunate to be joined by Dr. Raul Nicochea, course director of SHS 1 and 2. Dr. Nicochea, thank you so much for being here. If you would, please tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are and what you do here at UNC. Um, of course. Uh, thank you, Anu, and thank you, Peter, for having me over. Uh, as you said, I am the course director for SHS 1 and 2, which is a mandatory course for all um, students in their first year at the UNC School of Medicine. Uh, I am a historian. I went to McGill University, where I got my PhD in history some years ago. I have been on the faculty at UNC since the year 2010. Um, what else? I'm from Peru. I have two kids, and uh, I really like living here in um, Chapel Thrill. Chapel Thrill. I haven't heard that before. Okay, Chapel Thrill. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Nicoche. It's wonderful to have you. Um, to just dive right in, uh, could you start by telling us what SHS stands for and in your own words, what this course is about? Sure. Um, SHS stands for Social and Health Systems. And in a nutshell, this is an introduction to several insights from the social sciences and the humanities that are relevant to understand the relation between clinical phenomena on the one hand and phenomena from the sociocultural sphere on the other. Great. So in our conversations with peers at other medical schools, STEM classes and doctoring classes like PCC are pretty standard for the academic curriculum. SHS seems to be rather unique. Um, what do you think SHS has to offer students in their journey to becoming, as we often joke, world-class physicians? As I was saying, the SHS focuses on these relations between clinical phenomena and sociocultural phenomena. And for the last, let's see, gosh, 40 years, we have been teaching this course at UNC for 40 years. And the realization of our whole faculty has been that one cannot understand these complex phenomena at this nexus of the clinical and the sociocultural just by appealing to our knowledge of pathology and physiology, nor just by appealing to our knowledge about um, clinical skills. Instead, we need a different kind of skill, a different kind of habit. And these kinds of skills and habits are acquired through understanding um, social sciences and the humanities. And Specifically, the kinds of phenomena that I mean are, for example, what, what does it mean to be ill? Like, what does it feel like to be ill? How does one make sense of illness or normality? Um, another kind of thing that uh, we can access by you know, focusing on the social sciences and the humanities are um, ideas about health, wellness, and disease, on the other hand. These ideas are not natural, they're not normal. They, they rise and fall with our understanding of science. They rise and fall with what we emphasize as um, societies, as, as like things that need to be focused on. Pandemics are a great example of that, for example. Another kind of thing that we can understand through social sciences and the humanities really well are uh, uh, decisions that clinicians must make when taking care of people, or what are the circumstances under which physicians and, and any clinician really makes decisions about how to care for others. Um, yet another thing that you can understand really well um, by focusing on, you know, 
some approaches from the social sciences and the humanities are uh, access uh, to certain healthcare technologies or the use of certain healthcare technologies. All of these things have been addressed really well for decades by people who work in epidemiology, in anthropology, history, political science, uh, policy research. These are fields that are complementary to clinical science, but not exactly clinical science and not exactly biomedicine. Yeah, I, I think, like you said, there is such a, a widespread like social phenomenon. I mean, that is such a that is such a huge blanket it encompasses so many things. And it's really amazing. I think that we have a course like this that intersects those um, in our learning of like just, you know, clinical and clinical application. And it's been decades, too. Like 40 years. 40 years. That yeah. is amazing. I know. Think about it. I mean, I have this slide for M2s. I don't know for M1s. I don't know if you remember this because I would have shown it to you in your on, on your first day of orientation. Also, um, when SHS, uh, well, it wasn't yet called SHS. It had a different, longer name. But when the course first started in 1978, we had a unit in the course on the Soviet healthcare system. Guess why? Because you know it was the middle of the Cold War. It really mattered to just about every clinician who was coming up to understand a little bit more about how is it that Soviets do things and why. So we had a whole unit on them. We don't have that anymore, <laughs> as you noticed. Um, but we have a unit on sexuality and health. We did not have that 40 years ago. So the course itself changes. I mean, it has to change because our priorities change. The, the things that we pay attention to change. At the time, it didn't seem for various reasons like, you know, sexuality was something that uh, physicians would need to be paying a lot of attention to 40 business 40 years ago um, and now you cannot do without it it makes you wonder i mean 40 years from now when maybe you are teaching the course i mean what are you going to be thinking oh my god those people in the 2020s i mean how could they not see that this was the thing but it, it's a good thing that the course is evolving and, and matching what's going on now uh, rather than taking a time to get the feedback and then start implementing it. So I think that's a really good aspect of the SHS course. Yeah, that fluidity is beautiful, like just matching, I mean, just reality, right? Like the climate is changing around us, right? Our society changes the more we understand about each other and humans, right? Like that changes. So I think that that's a beautiful thing. Um, you've already touched on a lot of, you know, the social phenomena and some topics um, that SHS kind of covers. Um, could you go into more detail about what SH1, SHS1 specifically focuses on and what should students expect in this class and what themes or topics would you recommend that they pay the most attention to? Ooh, okay. A lot there, I know. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Lots to talk about there. But I, maybe I can break it up into a couple of things. Um, <laughs> okay, so SHS1 is a course, it has a theme. Um, the theme of SHS1, just in my words, is um, the sociocultural world in which medicine happens. So roughly speaking, I would say that SHS1 is split into two sub areas. The first one deals with uh, some foundational concepts that you're going to be needing, like the concept of culture, which for many, um, many students who have backgrounds in the social sciences and the humanities already, this is applesauce. They, do they really need to go into what is culture again? Not everybody has that background. So having something of a, you know, a primer for everyone 
to draw on, maybe to challenge also is important. So we need some of those foundational concepts to begin with. And then in that first part, we are going to go into the topic of social contributors to health and disease. Sometimes these used to be called social determinants of health. It's a little bit more nuanced than that to speak of things like gender or race or sexuality or families and social networks or um, socioeconomic status. But these factors do shape powerfully the kinds of obstacles, opportunities, resources that one can draw on in order to you know, feel good. Uh, in order to access health resources as well. So those would be part one of SHS1. In, SH, in, in the second part of the course, we take a deeper dive into um, medicine as a culture of its own. I would say, well, you need to think of medicine as a culture of its own, as if it were, in a way, you know, a very small country with its own language, its own boundaries, its own police, um, its own people who certify whether you belong or not. <laughs> medicine operates in some you know, parallel ways like that. And medicine has a very special relation to some issues like death and dead bodies. Medicine has a very special relation to uh, categorization. I mean, creating medical categories, diagnostic categories, for example, is something that is absolutely necessary. In fact, in daily life, nobody can go around life without putting things in boxes. It helps us live. It helps us make sense of life. But at the same time, and this is very specific for medicine, some categories um, can constrain action. It can constrain your own thought. It can lead to stigmatization of, frankly, normal variation in human life and in human behavior. Medicine also has a very special relation to evidence. And I mean, you know, biomedical scientific evidence. Like, what do we mean by that? Is it how good is evidence? How, who, who gets to say when evidence is evidence as opposed to, you know, fake? And uh, the forces that shape clinical learning. All of those are part of the, you know, the broader package of medicine as a culture. And that's what we deal with in the second part of SHS1. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a great way to put it. If students aren't aware, I think we should go ahead and state that if you thought you would never write an essay again after you finished med school applications, you are mistaken. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> In SHS 1, <laughs> we write two major papers, uh, one about personal illness narrative and the other is about the home visit assignment. Um, please tell us a little bit more about these assignments and how students can make the most out of them. First, can, can I have the address and the name of whoever's been telling students that they're not going to have to write again in schools of medicine in the United States? Because I'm going to dox those folks. That is not right. <laughs> <laughs> they should know better. Uh, physicians never stop needing to have good persuasive arguments, creative arguments. They need to be able to explain their decisions to patients, to their colleagues, to administrators, to students. Um, the need for them to explain themselves is never going to go away. And one of the best ways in which to hone that skill is to actually you know, be alone and write and think about why you say what you say. The practice of writing essays in particular 
helps you refine your point and helps you clarify your thinking. There's three things that I think essays do just about better than any other uh, writing tool in, in my um, toolkit. One of them is it forces you to explain the concepts, the words that you use. Not everybody uses them in the same way. Second, in a good essay, in a, I mean, there's crappy essays out there too, but in a good essay, you explain the assumptions that you're making and you explain the, I mean, why you assume the things that you assume. Sometimes you have, you know, clear proof of what you're saying. Sometimes you have to take leaps, uh, educated leaps, but they're still leaps and you have to be able to explain those assumptions. It's not always easy to um, know when we are making assumptions um, that are shared by others, especially if others don't challenge us. The, the, you are most likely to not go challenged when you are only hanging out with people who think like you all the time. So writing an essay and thinking about who is going to be reading that and how they might be able to counter uh, or object to what we are saying is something that you get to do in a good essay. And Third, with a good essay, what you're trying to do is persuade others about a certain point. Part of your growth as professionals is to recognize when there's a good argument out there that, you know, despite your objections, you should be considering it. So learning how to change your mind is also part of the discipline of learning to write well. And there is a certain kind of humility that goes with that with acknowledging that, yeah, you know, I could change my mind about this because of this argument that I read here. I think that is really a beautiful thought. I've never thought about just, you know, essays being such a powerful, um, you know, that mode of writing specifically being such a powerful place for us to develop a lot of communication skills. Um, and I think it's interesting, right? In SHS1, they, uh, the students are going to do a personal illness narrative and the home visit, right? And I think the personal illness narrative is, is so different, right? Because in a, in a way, it's, um, you know, it is very unique to the author, it's about them, it's it's a very vulnerable take. And the home visit is, you know, trying to, you know, write a story about someone else. And I was just wondering if you could just dive into a little bit about uh, what students should expect kind of with those different assignments and like how to approach kind of writing those essays, maybe. It's a great question because I've never had to do either. <laughs> um, actually, maybe when I was younger, I did something that was similar to this, but it's been a long time. I can tell you uh, some of the best writing by students that I have seen. I have seen a lot of really excellent writing by students. Some of what the best writing does is, is it it's very clear about the assumptions that it makes and it doesn't really shy away from seeing some piddly little detail as a lesson from which you can draw some interesting lessons. A paper cut could be fascinating if you think through, you know, how you would explain this to an alien who doesn't have skin, for example. Like, why does it hurt? And what is this thing that is all over me? And it's the largest organ in the body, right? Um, I don't know. That's what I've heard. Um, so there's something to be learned, even from, you know, very prosaic things that one takes for granted every day. If you just step back and say, okay, but how do I know that this paper cut is nothing? All this experience that I take for granted as normal and boring, it could be valuable and interesting if I just, you know, not sit here, but like, you know, sit all the way over here and then look at it in a different light. And that's where the personal illness narrative, the home visit 
is, um, you know, I have thought about this a lot because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, with a home visit, you, your, your generation, you had to do the home visit from afar, right? So the home visit exercise, I, I love the perspective shift of that. Um, I love the fact that it, it, it forces budding clinicians out of the comfort zone of the clinic, you know, where you're in control or where the clinician is in control, you know, with all the bells, the whistles, the colleagues who can come in and the person who actually walks all the way to them, waits 15 minutes or more to be seen and then, you know, has to explain things to the physician. There's an interesting flippy thing happening when you go to their home, which they control, you know, where they welcome you if they want. I mean, and the COVID thing showed us clearly they don't want to welcome you in their home because you could make them sick. Um, Yeah, I love that power inversion. Um, And that didn't happen for you. I'm actually curious about how this, you know, how the experience was, you know, how you process that experience if you think about distance and how distance shapes clinical relations or just, you know, teaching relations. I don't know. I have moments of doubt about like, you know, was there any way that we could have done better with this exercise? We love the exercise. We wanted to keep it. And was distance, was distance, uh, home visiting the, the right approach? Um, I don't know. It's interesting, right? Because I think each of us, you know, the interviewers and the interviewee, right? The the patient that we were visiting, right? We were in our own environments, right? Like in, in our own comfortable environments. Like we decided that because we were able to be virtual. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder, like you said, it might be curious just to whether, you know, kind of putting us, you know, the medical students and stuff like, you know, prospective clinicians, like outside of their comfort zone, right? You said, like you said, like that power inversion, is that maybe necessary? Um, was that maybe a necessary part of the assignment in itself? Or is there something that comes from us each being in our own comfort zones and like carrying out this exercise? And like, is there, do you get deeper maybe because you're in your own comfort zones, each of you, or, you know, is that, you know, like you said, kind of power inversion necessary for the assignment? And when I, th- when I think about the, the assignment, uh, I love the idea because Nowadays, if someone gets sick, they just go to the ER by an ambulance. The doctors never really go to the patient. But I feel it's a, it's a good experience to see as a doctor, not now, not us now, of course, but like as physicians, going to a patient at their home to help them, I feel like it, it has a different feel to it that you're doing a little bit more to help the patient and not just helping them at the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of feels good. Yeah. Um, if, if we had experienced it. I know, I'm from Egypt, so I know back in the day, um, and I, and still done till today, if, I mean, if someone gets sick and they know a relative or someone who's in the medical field, they can just call them and say like, oh, my mom is sick, and then the doctor would just come. Yeah, um, home visit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it, it's, it's done, I feel like, in other places around the world, especially where um, emergency services are not as mm-hmm. available as here. So I think it's a good perspective yeah. to have. Yeah. yeah. Most definitely. Um, Kind of changing gears here a little bit. Um, Generally speaking, I know humanities and writing um, are not everyone's first or second loves. Um, Personally, as someone who (laughs) loves these subjects, though, and is fascinated by their intersection with medicine, um, I was wondering if you could share your thoughts on the value of these subjects to future physicians and medicine overall. Um, I have thoughts. (laughs) <laughs> about, that sounded loaded. Um, lots of well this is kind of a it's it's a it's funny this is a question that keeps on i would say haunting historians um why should clinicians learn history 
for example. So I now I'm just going to like retrench back into my own field rather than the Noah's Ark of disciplines that make up SHS. The first, um, the first um, uh, article that I read about why should clinicians learn history it was written in the late 19th century and it was by physicians who physicians were the first people who cared about the history of their field and you know try to write it try to make sense of it and they had some doubts about you know why why should physicians learn this kind of uh, learn to do and to appreciate this kind of work and what they they came down on the side of um a lot of uh, medicine back in those days, this is the late 19th century, was learned as a sort of an accumulation of knowledge, like, you know, one after the other, somebody did a little bit better every time. So learning about that progression um, was something that the contemporary practicing clinician of the new field, new quote unquote field of bacteriology could not do without because bacteriology was at the time such a hot new thing that was developing. Like you really needed to know what somebody who had been just, you know, five or 10 years before you had been doing in order to practice as a decent bacteriology researcher, say in 1908. Later historians started taking up the same question. Why should physicians, again, learn history? And they came on the side of uh, a different kind of insight. They, they started to realize, and this is the insight that I value the most. Um, over time, uh, some things change and some things don't change in how we think about health and disease, in the kinds of technologies that we use and that we have access to in the kinds of barriers there are for people to feel well and to do well. So history, what it does is it really focuses our attention and our skills on trying to be very thorough and clear about how is it that things have changed over time or, or not changed. I mean, history is not just an explanation of how things change. It's also an explanation of there's no change. Nothing ever happens. Everything is the same. Nothing gets better or worse. So explaining change and continuity is valuable for you to understand where you are right now. But it gets even better because at some point, once you have done the homework of, you know, more or less mapping out what is it that has changed or what is it that hasn't changed in the last you know, 20, 50 years, 100 years, you can try to take the next step. And the next step is to ask, okay, why? Why have things changed? Or why haven't things changed? Why is, why is it the same old S that we have to deal with now? And when you start to get into the why things change and why things don't change, you're really getting into some deep questions about what we value most as a society and what drives change or continuity as a society. You're moving in on occasion away from the clinical field to ask questions about, you know, socioeconomic structures that may be unjust, that may favor some people over others. You may actually realize that at times change or continuity has to do with one single person, you know, who either stood in the way very effectively or who actually championed things that were very good or were very bad. When you get to that why, you are kind of in that moment in the Matrix movie where Morpheus starts telling Neo, you know, you cannot make a choice until you understand it. It's, yeah, 
Actually, when I saw that movie and I heard that line, I was huh, somebody did their homework over here. I love that movie. It's a great movie. It is a great movie. Keanu Reeves is amazing too, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On a fun note, this year's summer reading assignment was Being Mortal um, by Atul Gawande. Um, what are some of your other personal recommendations for books or articles that every future physician or anyone really um, should read at some point in their life or career? Oh, dang. I love that question. Can I nerd out? Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> no permission needed. Okay. Uh, hey, people, you need to read this. <laughs> you need to read this. I don't know that this is going to be your cup of tea, um, as Anu was saying. Um, but I would be remiss if I didn't tell you about some of the things that I that I have reread because they are that awesome. I think the first book that ever made me want to be a historian of medicine was by a Peruvian historian. His name is Marcos Cueto, and the book is called El Regreso de las Epidemias. It's a book about epidemics and like different kinds of epidemics that have occurred and then reoccurred and then reoccurred <laughs> in Latin America. And the question is like, why do these things keep on happening? <laughs> It's a brilliant book, and it's, it just at the end of it, you keep on thinking, "This sucks. We can do so much better." And yet, you're, you know, you also leave with the feeling that, you know, epidemics are widespread. This is going to happen again, despite our best efforts. Um, I love recently a book by this uh, French historian who is at uh, Sciences Po in Paris. His name is Guillaume Lachenal, and the book is called Le Médicament qui devait sauver l'Afrique, and it's it's uh, it got translated in into English as the Lomidin Files. And it's a, it's a story about the French colonial administration in, in, in West Africa and how they were just so obsessed with the use of Lomidin. In the United States, it's pentamidine. It's a drug that was used to treat um, sleeping sickness, and it was an abject failure. But the physicians and the administration that was in charge of that, they kept on thinking, no, 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 we, we can make it work. And they failed, and it was just so horribly bad. Nothing went right with that, but they just would not let go. Uh, I mean, it it reads like a comedy of stupidity. And yeah, you leave deeply frustrated and thinking, holy smokes, is it possible that we could do this again in the present day with another like magic drug or magic treatment? Yes, that's the answer is yes. Um, stupidity has not left us. You know, blind trust in tech fixes has not left us. And the last thing, one thing that I love reading with students is uh, is a book by Lisa Rosner who retired recently, and it's called The Anatomy Murders. Um, and it's a book about um, these two serial killers in uh, Edinburgh in the early 1800s who... I mean, seeing that anatomists were so hungry for fresh cadavers to teach anatomy to medical students, they took the entrepreneurial decision to murder people so that they could sell their fresh corpses to these anatomists who never asked any questions. Yeah, it's pretty dark, um, but it's so well-researched. Those are great recommendations. I, yeah, I had never come across these or heard of these before, but they sound... Nerd out! <laughs> sound amazing. Like, yeah. I, I don't read much, but I feel like those would sound great. I would probably pick one of them and, and give them a read. Yeah. Yay! I call this podcast a win already. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, thank you so much for nerding out with us. Um, those are those are all the questions that we had on our end, but we wanted to open it up and give it an opportunity to you if there was anything else in all of the amazing insight that you have already shared with us that you wanted to to kind of say, whether about, you know, anything really, humanities, med school, anything, just anything on your mind at this moment in time. Hmm. Thank you so much for having me over. This is the first time I've done a podcast with um, students. I mean, I spend a lot of time with students, uh, but this is the first time that I've done, and it has been a tremendously enjoyable experience. First, a you know, if any faculty ever hear this, they should we should all show. It's great. I to any students who are listening, do keep on you know talking to the faculty. I know that the work that you do for SHS, I'm a realist. I know that you know most of your mind share is dedicated to studying, uh, memorizing some things, trying to pass the next test, keeping your head afloat. At some level, do remember that disrupting that pattern by focusing on other things, your clinical skills, uh, reading outside is really valuable and it really is going to enhance your education. Um, So, you know, yeah. Thank you. That was amazing. Yeah. Could not say it any better. It was a very enjoyable (laughs) podcast for us, too. Yeah. My pleasure, you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, everyone, for uh, listening to our latest episode. My name is Peter. My name is Anu. And see you guys on the next episode at the Tar Heel Prescription. Thank you.